You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. Your guide on the side. I would suggest you forge more character. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. You know, uh, it seems like we're always in search for the next thing that'll make us happy, right? There's, there's just going to be the next thing. The World Cup will make some countries happy. This new legislation will make others happy. We, we're just constantly trying to, to find the next, you know, happy pill. But uh, on today's Coaching Corner, I wanted to talk about the top five things that you actually might not, you might need to get rid of if you want to be happy. So instead of trying to keep aggregating and taking more in and more and more and more, maybe the real power of happiness is being okay with less, right? Being okay with not not needing more things, not needing more events, not needing the next activity, the next party. You know, we had a we had a really fun um, last week where a, a really close family friend got married. Two family friends actually married each other. It was a really great event. And, you know, I think we had three or four events and we weren't even like in the main circle of the family. We were just kind of on the outside, but we still went to three different events for this wedding. If you were in the circle of the family, you probably had five or six events you had to go to just to just to get married. And I'm thinking, wow, that's exhausting. That is a lot of stuff just to get done. Now, when you're done the next, you know, and you got the next week free, uh, are you just going to relax or are you going to actually go looking for more stuff to do? A lot of us are never happy. We just need to constantly be looking for the next thing, looking for the next thing. Here's the top five things, my little bit of advice for you, that you're going to have to get rid of if you want to be happy. Okay, so you just think about your own life and let's see if we can lose some of these. Number one. The number one thing, uh, first thing we've actually got to get rid of is we've got to write off our longtime grudges. Do you have somebody that you ha- you're holding a grudge against? You just can't let go. Something they did, they hurt you, they said something rude, they did something rude. Maybe it's an ex-spouse, an ex-boyfriend, girlfriend, a business partner. Have you been able to write off the long-term grudge? Because if you can't and you keep dragging that grudge around, guess what, folks? That's yours. You are going to continue to suffer that grudge. And remember, interestingly, the other person that you're holding the grudge against, they probably don't spend any time thinking about you. They may have moved on. Oh, I know that makes me so mad. I hate it when they hurt me and then they move on easily. And I just have to take my pain and suffer with it for the next year. Long-term grudges, folks, they'll kill you. They'll kill you every time. And so one of the activities I'd suggest to help you move forward, commit yourself that you'll write the source of your grudge. Write them a letter. I want you to sit down and write this person that hurt you a letter. Oh, well, I'm not going to mail it. No, I want you to write it as if you're going to hand it to them. And just get all your enemy, get all your venom out, get all your energy out. And and I want you to get it all out in a couple, two, three, four, five pages worth of writing. And I want you to handwrite it if you can. Oh, that's too exhausting. 
I know. I want the energy to come out of you. I want you to feel exhausted having done it. Write the letter, finish the letter, sign the letter, and seal it in an envelope. Now the energy's out, the pain is out, the grudge is out. Then you can decide if you're going to do something with it. I'm not saying you need to send the letter, but I want you to build a realistic plan to replace the grudge now. Now that you've got the energy out, what are you going to fill it up with? Are you going to fill it up with more purpose, more vision? What are you going to replace that grudge with? Find something that truly motivates you. Go rebuild the business. Go find new friendships. Grow new friendships. Fill it up with something else. And intentionally say, I'm going to fill this space with another friendship. I'm going to fill this space with another opportunity, a business opportunity, and I'm going to knock it out of the park. And then use that same energy that you used to spend feeding the grudge. Use it right now to just go move your life forward. So rule number one, write off the long-term grudge. If you want to, if you feel prompted to, send the letter and just get it out of your system. If you don't, I've seen people do the craziest things. They burn the letter. They have some formal you know, process to, to let the great spirits of the earth take the letter away and take the energy away. I've seen people just take it out, put it on a tree, and shoot the crud out of it. The letter, of course, nothing else. Uh, the second basic tool or thing you got to deal with and let go of is you got to quit taking the emotional bait. Man, if you notice that a lot of times you take the bait, when somebody says something to you that makes you frustrated, you take the bait every time. I sit and watch my kids fight and they just, they're playing and I could see the older ones kind of teasing the younger one. And it's like, in my head, I'm like, don't take the bait, son. Don't take the bait. One of you is going to end up crying, and it's not going to be the older one. But boy, as soon as um, he starts taking the bait, it's game over. And then the whole day for that kid is ruined because his older brother was teasing him. That happens in all of our lives. We have people that know how to push our buttons. And as soon as you gain the power of letting go of your need to respond to it, just smile and walk away. And the minute you walk away from somebody that's trying to hurt you, you've taken your power back. Examine people in your life, here's an activity for you, who are most likely to try to tip you over emotionally. The ones that like push your buttons. It could be the one just at Christmas once a year that just says that one thing that ticks you off. You'll notice their behavior is fairly predictable. And so if it's so predictable, you can figure out a plan for how you're going to handle it. Next time this person says this one thing that makes you so frustrated, what are you going to do? Come up with a plan. Just And what I'm, I like to do is just say the same thing over and over. Oh, boy, there you go again. Never happy. And then I walk away. <laughs> there you go again, trying to make me mad at you. Ugh, silly, silly, and then walk away. But as soon as you have the power to not react, holy cow, that's one of the most powerful things you can give up are your reactions. Because in the end, they're not going to help you. They're not going to help you. Uh, Number three, avoid the empty calories of negativity. Some of us are so into just carrying negativity with us. And um, the reality is, is it's just empty energy. So you can be as negative as you want. It just doesn't feed you. It just won't feed you. So I just suggest as an activity, make it a goal every day to find the stuff that's working. Find some positive things that happen to you today and start making a list. Just three a day, three positive things that you found beautiful or wonderful or, 
or an example of something that just was very positive. Once you start counting your many blessings, you know what? Amazing things start to happen. Teach your children, for example, how important it is to see the good and um, and have them make a note of it. When they sit down to dinner, why don't you go around the table and have everyone give you a chance and everyone shares one thing that happened in their day-to-day that was really positive. I'm telling you, if you spend one month writing down three positive things a day in your life, you're going to see positive. And you're going to notice that the calories of the positive are much more fulfilling and give you so much more and better energy than the calories that come from the negative stuff of life. You know, the emotional calories I'm talking about. So um, let's avoid the negativity. The fourth thing we need to get rid of, get rid of the same old stories. Get rid of them. You're done. Quit telling the story if it doesn't work, right? It doesn't work anymore. If you have to have a story for why you do something that's dysfunctional, then you keep just believing the story. It doesn't matter why you didn't work out today. It doesn't matter why. There's a million stories. Well, I was really busy and today I had to get up super early and great. But the story doesn't replace working out. So quit telling it. We A lot of us think, if I've got a really good story, it justifies why I completely eat two boxes of Twinkies a week. It doesn't matter. Well, my mother was really hard. To, it doesn't matter. If you keep telling the story, the story automatically justifies your problem. So don't justify it anymore by having a story. And I'm not telling you that there aren't real stories. People have real reasons to be mad. But if you keep retelling the same old story about how broken down you were and how misused you were, it's not going to ha- help you. Yesterday we spent some time with Kimberly Giles talking about this, uh, you know, the victim life and the victim story. And it's the exact same thing. If you keep telling the victim story, you remain a victim. One of my great heroes is Elizabeth Smart, who's kidnapped by a crazy psycho, and she will not be framed as a victim. She's a victim's advocate, but she's not going to be framed by this yahoo the rest of her life. She's moved on. Sure, she was victimized and... She's changing her life and doing this and doing this, and she feels good about herself and is having a baby, and she's a powerful woman. Get rid of the story. Turn it into something else. Clean it up. Make it more positive, more powerful. Put yourself back in the power position. The final thing we need to get rid of is we've got to finally face our fears. So many of us are running away from our deepest fears. And in the end, you're not going to, run out. You're not going to outrun the fear. You have, to, you have to face the fear. And as soon as you face the fear— Take it on. So if the worst thing in the world could happen to you today, what would happen then? Then what would you do? You'd handle it. If you found out your spouse was having an affair, and that is the scariest thing you could ever face in your life, if your child died in a car accident, if you failed that test today that you're so worried about in school, guess what would happen? You'd handle it, and tomorrow's another day. Once you face the fear and you realize you can handle it, then what? Well, then, well, I guess I ought to move on and start handling life. The reality is most of the time your worst fears never come true. And if they do, you'll handle it. You always have. You always will. The amazing task and and learning about everybody in life is you probably will never face your biggest fear, really, because the biggest thing that could – worst thing that could ever happen to you usually doesn't ever happen to you. But if it did, you'd handle it. Because you're just that kind of person. Anyway, five basic things you got to write off if you want to be happy. Write off your grudges, 
Quit taking the emotional bait. Avoid the empty calories of negativity. Send the same old stories out to the cleaners. And finally, face your fears. And when you do, folks, you'll handle it. That's it. Happiness, folks, comes from your resiliency, your ability to handle your life. Happiness doesn't come by adding more and more junk to your life, more and more complications. That's not going to bring the happiness, just complications. That's the Matt Townsend Show, folks. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Stick with us. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, with more than 3 billion people, half of the world's population currently is living in poverty, and over a third of them living on less than $1.25 a day. Poverty is one of the world's top social economic concerns. The United States is attributed with 47 million people living on or below the poverty line. There, uh, however, are no silver bullets to ending poverty. It's such a complicated issue. But Brigham Young University students, along with a prominent NGO organization, non-government organization, Fundación Paraguaya, uh, might have found a catalyst for change. And here to talk to us about it today and his project, Poverty Stoplight, is Professor uh, Jeff Sheets. And Jeff is a professor in the advertising department here at Brigham Young University, but before was a a director of the Laycock Center for Creativity and Collaboration here at BYU. Jeff, thanks for being with us today. Oh, thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. What a cool idea, really, when you – I mean, you may be taking on probably one of the most complicated issues of humanity, poverty. No, absolutely. This is one of those types of projects that really gets you interested in how does the world around you work. And when you look at BYU's aims and mission statements, being able to help alleviate those social ills that we're all facing. Um, we might we might be able to think about poverty. Well, that's not happening in my neighborhood here in Provo. Right. Um, but it actually is at certain levels. Poverty is one of those most interesting, multifaceted um, elements of our of our society. What makes up the the complexity? I mean, some people think, well, if those people would just get a job, then they'd just be out of poverty. It's not that simple. No, it's never that simple. In fact, the, the great thing about Poverty Stoplight as a, as a tool for any kind of social innovator who's looking to alleviate social ills, it actually looks at it in a multidimensional way. Poverty can't be described by just the outward appearance of things. It might not be right. the fact you live in a hut and you have dirt floors. Those are the things that might be glamorized in a movie. But poverty actually can be found in multiple levels. And I, I've heard you mention even a little bit about it might be mental health, right. social, right. social uh, issues that you have just in a community. So what, what Poverty Stoplight tries to do is it puts it down into multi-facets, 50 different indicators. It might be everything from income levels to clean water hmm. to health, and, but also safety, security. It could be things about yeah, bowling. crime even. I mean, it's probably – it's everything. It is. And, and OK, so this is an app that – uh, your students have put together with Fundacion Paraguayo. Is that how it works? Correct. So Martin Burt is the this amazing social innovator from South America. Yeah. And, and I find it this really kind of beautiful um, serendipity and paradox almost that out of one of the poorest countries in right. the world is coming a methodology and a metric 
which can actually help alleviate one of their largest issues, which is poverty. Amazing. And so when you think about that, it's, it's kind of a beautiful idea. And then for BYU, we're really excited to be able to try and help um, establish how can it better be used? How can you better communicate it? Coming from a, a communication and a storytelling side of things, we mm. want to help tell this story to other areas of the world. And it's actually begun to export now. We're starting in Paraguay. It has now gone through all of South America. We've actually implemented things in Africa and all wow. over Asia. So um, it has this potential to to enable you to see how those 50 different indicators are actually being implemented in different communities. And if you were an NGO and you and you had you cared about education and that mm-hmm. was your thing and literacy is what you're going to eradicate, instead of walking in and looking on the surface level and saying, well, it looks like to me you guys can't read or you have a problem here – what, the, what this tool does is it actually gives each family a chance to do a self-diagnosis where they do a visual survey and they describe for themselves, well, this is where my level of poverty is in these 50 areas. Yeah. So they might say, well, my house is good. Yeah, I, I we got, got a, a house. And that's why it's called the stoplight is you pick a green, a yellow, or a red. So if it's green, you say, oh, my house is great. I've got a nice roof. I don't have a problem. I look at my water situation and say, well, it's probably yellow. I still go out to a, a public cistern. Well or something, the, yeah. Mm-hmm, but I get my water, but it's clean. Um, and then, and then, but oh, in this area. But whoa, we're sick. Lit- we, we, we have a lot of illness in our community. Right. Or literacy. I can't read. Right. So I can see these pictures, but right, I, don't know, right. I don't know what the words say. So I put a red there. And that gives everyone a chance to actually look at the things that they feel are important that they want to change. And that's where the that's actually where poverty can be eradicated is mm-hmm. when you self-identify with this is what I want to do. Because then you could go in and target uh, literacy for that family, maybe improve the community by putting a well in or, or a uh, some kind of uh, water delivery system. So th- then you can make an actual change. Exactly. And then you don't also have kind of that gringo mentality which says, I've come to solve yeah. all your problems <laughs> and I see what you need. Yeah. You let them self – Determine, this is what I want to do, and these are the changes I want to make. And it actually works really well with mentoring within a community because mm. the, the app works. So there's no magic app. There's not an right. app that we're going to put on the iTunes store and start right. downloading to save millions. But what this actually does is it maps with geotagging where all of the green lights, red lights, and yellow lights are. So if you start to say, wait a minute, a street, one street away from me, and if you think about this, especially in the developing world, it's really powerful. Hmm. If one street away from me, they all have green lights on the same issue that I have a red. Well, I now have a mentor or someone I can turn to right. in my own community and say, how did you do that? Let's model behavior against those that have positively made an impact. That's powerful. Plus, you could, I guess, um, the NGOs, the bigger – the organizations could start actually targeting, like, which area could we have the biggest impact by making one change because it will change the most population. And now you've, you've hit exactly on why it's, it's about using digital technology to be able to sh- demonstrate that and show the power of Man. that change. Does, so is the idea, though – I mean, I'm assuming a lot of these people, they won't have the app, but they'll have social workers in the area, and the social workers can go sit with the families and help them build the, the – the, actually take the assessment and then build the, the plan. That's correct. And th- so that is what the whole methodology. And so it, an app is, is kind of maybe the, the easy way for us to describe. Yeah. There's a, a platform to help change this. But it is a, a multi-step process with an individual social worker from an NGO working with an individual family, hmm. doing the self-diagnosis, and then creating the action plan that re- remediates oh. what the issues are. And then following up, imagine. 
You all of a sudden have follow-ups. How are we doing in our literacy program? Precisely. Every, and so that's where a social worker becomes so key. You yeah. start with the impetus of, I want change. They make their own decision. They make an action plan. Three months later, they're back saying, let's evaluate. Mm-hmm. What have we done on these six steps? Yeah. And a year later, they're still in the same process, helping them change. Unbelievable. Do we do this in the United States? Not to this level. The, the U.S. has been invited to participate with this as well. It's, it's kind of an interesting um, conundrum. We even need to look at it in Provo. But right, often we right. would say, well, I don't want to do this here yeah. in my community. We, we don't need these kinds of tools. These are for you know, the developing world. But the idea behind having someone help you self-diagnose, these are the issues that mm-hmm. I have, and then build an action plan and give you a little bit of follow-up and, and commitment to, to finish – I think we could use that everywhere. <laughs> well, in fact, in um, downtown Salt Lake City was known for doing a really good job with their homeless and, in fact, even giving them apartments that they would then – and then they go to, – to get into the program, you, you'd get a place to live, an apartment, but then you'd have to have a social worker assigned to you. The social worker would assess you, find out why you're homeless, then help you deal with the homeless issues that you have to deal with, mental health physical health, you know, education inter- or literacy, and then build a plan to get you kind of ramped back up. It's almost – it sounds like that, but at a global level. It's powerful. Yeah, and, and Salt Lake's model is exactly in that same kind of plan and platform. It's, it's, it's a little bit ironic when you think about it from maybe a BYU and a church perspective. Yeah. It, it really is like having a bishop and a Relief Society president yeah. come and like sit down with leaders you. that mm-hmm. come and sit and assess and and f- build an action plan and describe if we're going to give assistance in these areas. Here's how we're going to follow up and what commitments you're going to make yeah. in order to to, to change. It that. also seems like if you could get a, all of the the large churches, the Catholic Church in South America, if you could get them to become a part of this and help in the assessment, then it's not just giving care. It's it's not just giving fish. It's teaching people how to fish. Exactly. And that's that. Martin uses one of those. That's one of his monikers that he built a, one of his own frameworks around, which is teach a man to fish. And that, mm. that methodology is the plan and the hope. Uh, he's actually presented this at the Vatican to one of, their, really? one of their global poverty summits. And, and the materials that our BYU students have created have been the materials that he uses in presentations mm-hmm. in, those, in those locations. I mean, because I could see it easily, you know, being in the LDS church worldwide, but then the Catholic church is so much bigger. And, and then even bigger than all of that are the, all the NGOs, all of the other organizations that are all trying to do good, but aren't necessarily so process-oriented. They're not, it's not so systemic, right? It's like, here, let me just feed you. Or... I also see it's a great idea that if you could flip open like a dashboard and see where they need water services, then if you're a charity that goes in and puts wells in places or pumps in, you know, creates an actual water system for somebody, you could go target your areas. That, that's exactly the the platform is supposed so to powerful. be. Yeah. What's been great for us when you think about this, BYU students have this desire inside them to want to contribute in a positive way. Right. They, they think it's their mission to change the world. And what's really helpful is at BYU to have centers that want this to happen. The, the key center for this on campus is called the Ballard Center. Um, and their, their mission is to work with social innovators and help them develop better – how to do good better. Yeah. Everything you've described about well, wouldn't it be amazing if – BYU students can contribute to that. And so as a professor working with the director of the Ballard Center, his name's Todd Manring. Mm. He and I have worked with Martin Burt now for – Todd's worked with him for over seven years. I've worked with him together with them for four. 
And the the number of students who've been able to now help see this through, they've been, they've traveled the world, they've worked with the NGOs in places in Africa and all over South America who are implementing these changes, building the platforms of how to get the churches to say, well, what if we, what if we went and did the self-assessments? I mean, not to create a radical idea, but imagine if a missionary force of, you know, 75,000 is part of their work would actually go and say, what if we talked and today you don't want to hear my message, but would you look at this tool and let's take this assessment. (laughs) It'd be amazing. Every church leader in the Catholic church all over the world, a a priest doing that. Every United Way member, every, um, what do they call the the core? Uh, The Peace Corps. The Peace Corps member, everyone out there, if they were doing an assessment, and then you get a global census. Yeah. And, How powerful. And when you see the map, and I'll just I'll spin one around for you just to look at it. Yeah. You see oh, red, wow. yellow dots, and green dots. And so you can change the indicator, and those all those dots will change based on... A lot of red and a lot of yellow. Yeah. And there's a lot of work to do. But if you wow. change it to another, te- uh, another facet of poverty, you might be able to see a lot of green. Holy cow. Jeff, let's take a break. We're speaking with uh, Professor Jeff Sheets. He is actually a professor of account... Or of... Uh, Advertising. We'll come back and talk about how he got from there to working on this program. It's called Poverty Stoplight, a powerful opportunity to change the world, quite literally. Um, One family at a time, one community at a time, finding the need and targeting the specific need that's driving a family into poverty. We'll continue the discussion. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We are joined by Professor Jeff Sheets uh, from Brigham Young University, and he's talking to us today about Poverty Stoplight, which is a uh, is a project that um, they've put together here at Brigham Young University, but in partnership with uh, a foundation, Fundación Paraguaya, which is a foundation from Paraguay, and uh, it's to help NGOs, non government organizations fight poverty, but really what it is, at first, it's a tool to gather the information so, and then to deliver an action plan for how each specific person as a family or, or as a community can start to, to handle their issues. I guess it's also a way to accumulate best practices. Yeah, absolutely. It works as an amalgamator of those best practices so that you, you might recognize – um, certain social innovations that have tried to change something. Mm-hmm. And, and when you think about clean water is maybe an easy one because we, we see what wells have done and then it becomes um, how to get water directly to the house and other, in other areas. When you see what works in one community, what this also does is it, it helps each area of the world kind of modify it to their space. Right. What works in Paraguay will not work in sub-Saharan uh-huh. Africa. Mm. So you don't say, well, here's a place that gets flooded. Yeah. Always Paraguay. use this. Right. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. So you allow it to actually modify and change based on the location mm. where you are. So don't do in Cambodia what you did in Ghana and what you did in Ghana, maybe you do want to do differently in, in Paraguay. Right. It's interesting too, because I, I think I remember a few years ago, they were giving cell phones out to the poor. In those in poverty, which seems like that would be fantastic because then they could communicate and get a job and, and, you know, and have a phone number, except if that's not your problem, 
So if you don't have a communication problem, that's not what's keeping you in poverty. Being given a phone won't help me. If what I need is food, then I need food. Phones won't help if I need food. Exactly. And they might have sold the phone to go get the food, right. and then you've, you're right back in the same cycle. And yet we expended all the money. And so I guess part of this is really to target. It's just data. Gathering the right data and then targeting the right data with solutions creates progress. Exactly. And the, this idea of data, that's where the app comes in, is it allows technology to do the heavy lifting of, of bringing all the data together letting an NGO see then where their best efforts can be done. And if someone is, perhaps if, if people are really kind of already green, as we would say, yeah. it looked like they had a problem, maybe on the outside from the surface right. level. But when they self-assess, they said, well, what's, what's really driving my problems are three other issues. Interesting. And plus, plus you could start to see if everyone's, if we turn a community green, so green light versus red light, then we can also go to the green areas. It's not like the green areas are done. It just means now we know what works in those areas. So it's just a well of more information. Right. And you might be able to take those best learnings and turn them on to 22 other indicators who are actually still yellow or That's red. That's right. And I guess the goal would be of the 50 indicators to keep turning all of them green eventually. Absolutely. But even in the biggest cities, the best cities, in the best neighborhoods – they're not all green. No, and that's that's the great thing about how this should roll out is that each person – I mean even if you didn't take this exact methodology, if you were to evaluate your own life today, no matter what circumstance you're in and you're listening to this, you think, well, I'm, I'm perfect. Yeah, I got that. Actually, we're all poor in something. Right. We're, we're lacking in some things and it might be self-determination. It might be um, something to do with safety and security. It might, right. you know, you just, you, what you should do is just do a little analysis and what could you, what could you change? And then you start to make an action plan to, to get I love it. You know, what is interesting for me, you have worked with yourself, companies like, you know, uh, Times Inc., Nike, Apple, Franklin Covey, Nintendo, and a bunch of nonprofits. How how did you get involved? How does a professor of advertising end up in this? Well, that's a, that's a great question. The the again, the coolest part about wanting to work with BYU is you have this ability to to really change the world. And so, what we want to do is put all of our time and talents and efforts into lifting our brothers and sisters around us. Right. And and so, if you can use the way I look at it, people kind of laugh at advertising and think, what? That's like the That's worst. That's crazy. You just sell makeup. <laughs> yeah. You, you make people buy things they don't need. <laughs> but if it's really that powerful, right? If it's that great creative solution. Yeah, for as good tool, as you say you are. Yeah. So if, it's, if it can really make people do things they don't want to do, well, then couldn't it also be used to create really positive changes all over the world? That's couldn't so you true. engage people and persuade them to understand who they really are yeah. deep down and yeah. then to make a positive change for themselves? And so, actually, it's brilliant, right? Like, Use supposedly the 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 worst tools that make America the worst, but use it to be the best and help people become the best. That's that's, that's how we teach it. So so for me, I'm I'm always seeking for these kinds of projects, and this one came out. And when you think about social innovation, um, we 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 had two centers work together on campus to work on this. If you if you only all great 
innovation, innovative ideas have to come from some kind of mashup of multiple mm. disciplines. If you went to an engineer and they said solve poverty, they would design you a thing that does it. Right. If you went to the, a business person, they'd say, well, I've got a business plan and they'll make it. If you went to maybe a filmmaker, they'd make a film. But what if you brought all those people together and you yeah. kind of mashed these ideas up and it got a little messy because everyone wanted to do their thing until they started having empathy for each other. Mm-hmm. They, they actually started looking at the real problem, the root cause. Yeah. And then you start getting these innovative, creative solutions that we've never seen before because these different disciplines all came together. You know, it's probably the reason we don't have as much progress on a lot of issues, poverty, cancer. Um, When we have somebody come in to talk about poverty, they're usually a social worker just bringing in the statistics of poverty. And they have a bunch of ideas. But then I think of a – but you still have to communicate the idea. Then you could use technology to gather and accumulate more data and best practices. But you still also have to sell it to the community that might have to pay for it. And and then you need a network or somebody that, like a business side that can bring in businesses that could innovate. So it really – maybe that's the problem. And even in academics, we see everybody broken into these departments – but the departments, and I've seen it here at BYU and every university, they don't talk well. They don't interchange well. Hard to work together. You know no, what I no mean? question. And and that is that siloed approach. I think is kind of, in, in my personal opinion, is 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 gone. Is, is bygone. Then you have like though, but then you have these other organizations on campus, like the Ballard uh, Institute. Is that what's yeah, called? Ballard Center? Ballard Center, and um, the uh, Laycock Center for Creativity and Collaboration. And then all of a sudden. They they can bring in all of the other talented departments, right? To co- to to create a coalition. That's exact. That's those are their exact purposes, and that's why it's it's been really fulfilling to see BYU take a stand and have these centers, which will bring together multifaceted, talented yeah. people to try and and tackle these these things. When you look at the the aims of a BYU education, one of those aims, the fourth one, is to have lifelong learning and service. And what we're really believing is we should start our students with that lifelong learning and service mentality while they're here. Mm -hmm. And they're making these changes and implementing these kinds of programs as a student. They're going to be that much more prepared to continue to contribute as they leave. Love it. I love the kind of lifelong idea. I also love the fact that you're showing the complexity of poverty, the mere fact that it's a 50-point assessment. And um, so – it, I think it's important for all of us to lose the myth that poverty is about weak people that just don't try. Poverty is about – and the majority of the world really is has some level of being impoverished. Absolutely. And and the great thing is even the poorest person in the world can be rich in something. Yeah. Great. I mean they'll still have green lights. No question. And they and that that also helps re-empower them to remember where they are in a positive way. Yeah. And then use some of those those yeah. kind of self-affirmative goals to 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 help change focus those negative. strengths to deal with the negatives. What can we do just if anyone's out there listening, where can they go? Where should they go to 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 help? So we've we've created as part of this project, we've created a website for them. It's called povertystoplight.org. And on that site, it actually enables any, especially those who are involved with NGOs, it shows what's the how do I get involved? How do I get my organization to utilize this type of methodology? How do I contribute my data so we can start to see this map mm-hmm. grow out? Um, so at povertystoplight.org, you can see all of the information. It, it shows you exactly how to join the movement. 
Um, it gives you all kinds of explanations as to what this organization has been doing all over the globe. And and can they access the, – I guess once they're on, they can access the data and say, oh, our NGO could be helping these people then. Correct. The map is there. shows all the tools, samples Huge. of the assessments. It's, uh, it's pretty great. Ah, oh, Jeffrey. Well done, my friend. That's some pretty powerful stuff. Again, Jeff Sheets is his name. And if, if you want to contact him, you just got to Google Jeff Sheets BYU professor and you'll get right to his page, I'm sure. But go check out povertystoplight.org. And uh, understand, folks, we're all part of this uh, big family here on Earth. And if we can lift one, we lift us all. Jeff, thanks for being with us. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. And uh, this segment is a segment we do because Terry and I have to rifle through news all the time. And some news at one moment seems like, oh, that's really interesting. We ought to share that. And then as the shows go on, we don't ever share it. So we have a big pile of unshared news and we've got to flush it. One has to flush their news. So, Terry, we'll start with you. What story... Needs to get out there, but should be flushed. I've been sharing this uh, with you off the air Mm -hmm. about how much TV is actually out there. How many shows are are all these networks and streaming networks and, you know, cable networks making? Uh, They're having these uh, television critics uh, association meetings out in Los Angeles. All the broadcast TV companies are coming in and saying these are our new shows for the fall. The uh, CEO of FX comes in and each year he talks about how many shows are on TV. He told a TV critics meeting on Tuesday, scripted shows premiering this year should reach about 450 for broadcast cable and streaming services and near or exceed 200 or exceed 500 in 2017. He says a key driver in the streaming sector is Netflix, which he says has premiered or announced 71 scripted series, Ooh. a number he said excludes documentary, late night or non-English language shows. Wow. So there's even more than 71. 71. On Netflix. On Netflix. He goes, by comparison, broadcast networks, including NBC, ABC, and CBS, air about 150 scripted series together, pay cables at 50, and basic cables at 180. Wow. I guess his his main point is there's too much TV to watch. Nobody can consume all this, and there's some of it that just never gets seen. So at what point are we just throwing money down the drain making shows that no one ever watches? Yeah. And what? And so there needs to be – he's looking for a great uh, contraction of TV networks. Just, they'll just disappear from the dial because nobody's watching. How can you afford to otherwise? Yeah. You end up just throwing money and not getting anything back. I mean there's so. some that are fantastic. But there's a lot that aren't. A lot are just garbage. So we need to flush it. Flush it. There Speaking of flushing, uh, the Yankees are – they they got a little they got a little goodbye party going on here. For Alex t- Rodriguez, today? yes, last at bat ever. He, has, he hasn't actually been at bat in several weeks, but yes, they'll put him out there and they'll let him hit. And I'm sure, as did Jeter, hmm. he'll hit some phenomenal last shot that just or not puts him into maybe just gets up there, strikes out, and goes and sits down. Here's the news, though. A Rod, the Yankees will have ended up paying A Rod three hundred and seventeen million dollars. Yes, for one World Series title. 
Uh, they got to the playoffs. He he played yeah. well, and they just didn't have a team, you know, with him. They had one team that made it. Yeah, uh, one hundred and thirty-two million is what he's supposed to get paid. Uh, the luxury tax caused by his deal totaled an additional one hundred and thirty-two million. Yes. So his luxury taxes on his and I guess everyone else's mm-hmm. pushed the Yankees to have to pay an additional one hundred thirty-two million. Yeah, he's the, an expensive player. Yes. Hundred or three hundred and seventeen million worth it? Probably not. Yeah, he he's been a kind of a headache, and there's been a lot of selfishness, and there was a whole situation where he may or may not have tra- been involved in trafficking drugs from Canada, and who knows what happened. By the way, the Yankees aren't the only ones that paid. He also was paid one hundred nineteen million from Texas. Twelve million from Seattle, totaling four hundred and forty-eight million dollars for one ball player. Yes, something seems wrong. It's Something's the askew. it's called the going rate. He could get that money because it, he was one of the better players, and that was the top end of the market. Except in the end, he wasn't one of the better players. It doesn't matter what happens at the end. It happens when they sign you. What is that's, the current reality now? That's the gamble we call professional sports. So flush it. See you, Mr. Rodriguez. I don't know. LeBron signed a $100 million three-year contract yesterday. First time ever, right, that he's going to be the highest paid player in the NBA. Yes. Big deal. We talked earlier in the week about ridiculous sports that were part of the Olympics and now aren't. Mm-hmm. Yes, that was Remember fun. that story? Mm-hmm, totally. One of them, I believe, was live pigeon shooting. Was That, that was one of the ones <laughs> yeah, you brought up. That's a hard one. That one was taken away because, you know, <laughs> let's just Blah. shoot pigeons, I guess. Um, there's one here called distance plunging. And the idea behind the sport was to jump, a diver would jump in the water and coast underwater without limb movement for either 60 seconds or until they surfaced. And whoever could go the longest without move, you know, just so you jump in the water and stay still and just glide <gasps> under the water for as long as you could go. And whoever went the furthest would that, win. That was a competition? Yeah. So like distance diving or something. Wow. But that was discontinued long ago. Uh, dueling pistols. Uh, <laughs> How'd back that go? During the 1906 Interclated Games held in Athens, it was uh, proved the committee members weren't winners when it came to event titles. Uh, no dueling pistols were ever involved in the contest. Instead, competitors shot a pl- at plaster dummies dressed in coats from several meters away. What? Yeah. Uh, the strangeness aside, a poll conductor prior to the 2000 Games in Sydney found that nearly one in three people wanted to see that event brought back. So you're dueling, but you're yeah. not dueling with a live person. It's just a, a, a target, basically. So well, we've already talked about it might be a great presidential winnowing process. Yeah, and they mentioned that at the beginning. Aaron Burr and Alexander Ham- Hamilton showed that that could be a Started process. Started back then. Could be used. Tandem bike was an Olympic event <laughs> from 1908 to 1972. So you had two people on a bike that and they'd race 4,000 meters while fighting amongst themselves. They're just making stuff That up actually sounds like something more from the senior games. Yeah. Where you'd have grandma and grandpa on the tandem and then they'd fight when they end the, when they end the race. The final one was solo synchronized swimming. <laughs> Go, Jimmy! Yeah. Wasn't there also setting a spell and whittling? Weren't those a couple of them? <laughs> I'm just going to set a spell here. So those are some more sports. Okay, we'll flush those Olympics. sports. We do not want those. Here's the question du jour. Why do swimmers wear two swim caps? I don't know why. 
Uh, because one cap's not enough. Because the first cap... One for the show, two for... No, go ahead. Yeah, one for the money. Two for the show. The first cap is used... There's two reasons, apparently. Okay. One cap is makes it so... Um, it's It kind of holds the hair in, and mm-hmm. but the second cap, but it's got bubbles and creases in it, right. so they're not aerodynamic. Mm. The second cap then can be placed over the first cap, and by double capping, you get a smooth aerodynamic glide head. Huh. So there are probably two different types of caps then. Yes, they, and, and they are, and the The, the, the second one's probably even more... Uh, probably stretch on it. And so I would say a half down. size smaller. Interesting. The second reason? To keep their goggles on. Duh. Okay. So that you put the goggles in between. Uh-huh. Okay. That and makes it's, sense. And it, and it keeps a nice, tight fit. Okay. Why people needed to know that? Yeah. But it was big on the Twitter sphere. There What's you go. with the double cap? By the way, I think personally, environmentally, it's not as, it's not as healthy because we're, we're, we're having two or we could have one. Like when they ask you, do you want me to double bag your groceries? No. No. Nor should you double cap your head when swimming. Just a personal thing. Uh, so flush it. Flush it. You, what else you got, Tim? You've heard of uh, 3D printers. Oh, yeah. We can make all kinds of plastic, whatever doohickeys you need for whatever reason. Um, in uh, Michigan State University, professor built a set of 10 digits from a, a, a man that had died, he what? 3D printed the guy's fingers so Ooh. the police could test his phone. But he was dead. Dead. So he took a... How, how do you... So according to this uh, report, the man was murdered. Officials believe there may have been information on his phone that could lead to the killer. But was, as with most modern handsets, it's protected by fingerprint recognition and a passcode. The victim body was reportedly not in a state that would allow law enforcement to simply apply his finger to the phone. To, to access the fingerprint reader. So bypassing the smartphone uh, all to, and the manufacturer and all that stuff we heard about with Apple and the FBI were trying to break through some encryption issues. So hmm. they took this man's fingerprints that were on file. They had them 3D printed and they were able to take that 3D printed image of the man's fingerprint and place it on the phone and open his phone. That doesn't seem right. They said they covered the all. They covered the uh, the 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 3D printed version of the fingerprints with a thin layer of metallic particles, so the handset can read the individual markings. And it opened the guy's phone. Really? Okay, I believe that. I'm totally with you on that. How about this one? Flush that one, by yeah. the way. Get rid of those guys' fingers. They're giving me the creeps. Uh, baby talk. You're going to need to listen up for this one, Terry. Um, baby talk. You're going to have to talk like a baby. No, you don't do that. You Who's just, the you baby? Just talk to your child as no. if, they're a, if they're just a normal adult. Human. Baby talk can actually improve a child's language skills. No. Yes, it can. Yes, it can. Baby talk or the high-pitched sing-song voice parents use, which I can hardly wait to hear no, you use. I don't do that. It's beneath me. It helps the children learn their language faster, according to research out of Rutgers. Really. The best way to help a baby learn might actually be to follow many parents' instincts and use mother ease, as they call it, a sing-songy voice that exaggerates the sounds the baby hears. Hmm. Now, let's practice, Terry. Uh, a little sing-songy. Who the baby? <laughs> Do it with me, Terry. Say, who the baby? No, thanks. <gasps> you the biggest baby. You seem to be doing well. You. Oh, oh, oh. 
You got to breathe in fast. I was playing with my grandbaby last night. Oh. Oh, there's another baby. That's evil baby. Now starting to mess with happy baby. Oh, he's grabbing happy baby's lip. But it's the greatest thing because I when you you just parrot their sounds and then they mimic them back and then they parrot. Oh, it's fantastic. Okay, do you want to try it? No, 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 no. We're okay. I believe you. Well, how are you going to learn this if we don't? I'll figure it out. We could role play. Just like I've done with parenting all all along the way, I'll figure it out. We'll have Jeff be the baby. No, it's fine. We don't need to role play this one. Cool. (laughs) 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 Yeah. All right. Flush it then. Flush it. Still true. Stick with me. We're getting there, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. I would suggest you forge more character. Your guide on the side. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. As we're all out there doing what we can to raise our children, our goal would be that they could be independent of us, right? That that finally, you know, when they go away to college, that they can do it and they can be independent. And uh, eventually we could circle back and create a really interdependent relationship with them where we are independent, they are independent, and we can go create something really powerful and wonderful together. The assumption is, though, that that takes place. And so one of the things I wanted to talk about in this Coach's Corner are some ways that we can help our children become more independent and and raise them on to a level of independence. Now, um, one reason I bring this up is because I think we think they'll they'll do it, you know, just by the progression and maturity of life, that by the time they finally graduate from high school, they will be independent, right? Or when they get married. You know, they'll be independent. But it reminds me of um, a Steve Carell, Michael Scott scene in The Office where he is in financial trouble. He has a lot of debt and somebody, Creed, um, from the show suggests that he go and uh, and basically declare bankruptcy. And because he doesn't have a clue, Michael Scott doesn't, this character, he – uh, he walks out into the the office where everyone is standing, and he yells at the top of his lungs in declaration. By the way, I declare bankruptcy. He declares his bankruptcy, and everyone is they're basically you know Michael. It's gonna you can't just declare it. You you, you got to actually you, you got to file the legal papers, and you've got to do all of that. Here's here's a call. I declare. Bankruptcy! <laughs> well done, Michael. Now you have declared bankruptcy. It's not enough for our child to just scream at the top of their lungs, I'm mature or I'm independent enough. You know, at some point, they've got to show it. And so um, there are some things we should be doing, I think, as parents to, to help our children and to facilitate their independence. There's a lot of ways our kids have got to be independent, right? We want them to be whole children, healthy children. So we want them spiritually independent, socially independent, emotionally independent, intellectually independent. We want them financially independent. We want them to be able to be free 
to make real decisions on their own. And so let me just uh, go through some of these forms of independence, and we can all look at our own children and say, okay, maybe I need to zoom in on this one a little bit. One of the ways I talk about it is, and this would be kind of the center of the onion, is we've got to have our kids on a level of spiritual independence, I call it. Are they able to connect on their own to their deeper meaning, their deeper purpose, their higher power in life? Do they have a relationship with a higher power? If it's God, if it's, uh, you know, whatever your belief system is, we have got to be connected to that higher power in our life, especially in how that higher power influences what our purpose in life is really about. Do your kids have a, a, a sense in their life that their, their life means something, that it, they have a purpose here, that they have a very personal you know, mission that they are sent here to accomplish while they're here on this earth? Do they sense that? Are they pretty closely connected to what they're passionate about? Have you started with these teenagers to help them identify what their passions are, what their interests are? Do they, have, you, have you helped them figure out what their strengths are? What is it about their character that this world needs? Do they recognize that they are here as an agent, that they're here to make choices, that, that their destiny is not set, that they get to, to lead it and push? These are all very kind of spiritually grounded ideas, and it doesn't, I guess, necessarily mean you have to be religious, but spiritually connected for sure. And uh, if you're so inclined, as I am, to, to uh, you know, be religious, then go be religious, but use these ideas to make sure that they understand what right and wrong is, that they have a methodology in their brain to go figure out what is true. That way, when life throws them a curveball— they can run it through their spirituality and see if they can't make something out of it. Another way that they could be spiritually independent or to be independent is, is what I call emotional independence. Can they keep their cool and help others keep theirs? Do they understand their emotions? Do they really truly get how they work emotionally? Do they know where they're strong emotionally? Do they know where their emotional weaknesses are? Do they have uh, things they're battling, issues like anxiety or depression? Do they have a hard time focusing? It's, there's a lot of little things in our lives that, that make it hard for us emotionally. Have we lived a history with our family that may have impacted us negatively emotionally? Do we have um, some interesting uh, issues where we, we can't trust other people, where we can't where we don't have a, a view or a sense of ourself that's healthy? Do we have any addictions that our emotions are keeping us stuck to? Do we have self-control? And these are things we want to teach our kids, right? So that they can, they can feel the same emotions as everyone else, but it doesn't mean we're going to act on the emotions. Do your kids know how to cool themselves down emotionally when they're getting heated up? Do they know how to call a timeout on their life and, and walk away for a bit and come back and return and re-engage? Do they know how to manage their anger? Do they know how to be self-aware? Basic, emotionally independent skill sets. So we have spiritual skill sets. We have emotional skill sets. Uh, the, the third one we'll talk about uh, this break is, is simply about financial. Do they have the ability to earn? Do they have the skills, the tools they need? Can they actually get a job? Are they set up to go to college and or a trade school and get the skills they need to get out there and, and be independent? 
Because if they're not financially independent, then they might have to always live with you, right? And it doesn't mean they have to be a millionaire. It doesn't mean they they have to, you know, even go to college. But they need to be somewhat geared to go be able to make a living. Not just a living. Do they know how to manage their emotion? Do they understand debt? Do they understand credit? Do they understand how some of the basic financial um, issues of the world will go? Then it's not enough to just be spiritually independent and to be emotionally independent. Are you financially independent as well? Basic ideas. Think about your kids. How are they doing? And what can you do today to help them in one of those areas, to help them be more spiritually independent, more emotionally independent, more financially independent? By the way, if you hand them more money or if you hand them just your spirituality or if you hand them just your emotional help every time they need it, you might not actually be helping them be independent. You may actually help them be spiritually, emotionally, or financially dependent. And the more we do that as parents, the less uh, independent they'll ever get. So let's, uh, let's start looking at it. Just some basic guides, some help, some help and some insight into how we can grow more independent kids. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. If you have a brother or a sister, you understand that life wouldn't be the same without them. Um, you know, obviously some tortured you. I had three sisters that, and I was the baby, and they took as they took great care of me. They used to hold me down, though, by the way, and brush their long 1970s hair over my face, uh, which now makes me hate hair. But other than that, uh, love my siblings to death, think they're incredible. I had sisters that... That literally would, they were caregivers, they were protectors, they took care of me. I had a sister that uh, basically followed a prompting once. Um, she was supposed to pick me up and uh, just didn't feel right that she was going to go run an errand, pick me up and then run the errand, um, but just didn't feel right about it. So decided not to come pick me up, I believe, is how the story goes. I was young and uh, she ended up getting in a car accident. And it, it hit the side of the car where I would have been back in the day before we cared about seatbelts, really, or, you know, talking about anyone wearing them. We always had them rattling around the seats, but never were using them. And um, honestly, it, it probably protected me. Or I think she may have taken me home and then went to run this errand. So thank heavens for uh, siblings that do watch out for you, that do care for you. I remember vividly going with my sister as it was her, uh, my second sister, as it was her turn to watch and take care of me. But she was a very social sister and wanted to get to her friend's house. So she took me on the bike. I remember uh, riding along with her. I remember playing with my sister in the backyard and she really wanted to do an obstacle course. And I'm like, let's just play. Let's just play ball. Let's just throw a ball around or kick a ball around. She's like, no, we have to build an obstacle course. And we did it her way and she broke her foot. So, you know, that's just how families work. And we we stay together. We go to our hospital trips together. I remember uh, them coming to ball games of mine. I remember um, them supporting me as I went on my LDS mission. I just over and over and over, families, they matter, Right. And today is the day that you can actually do something about it. You have a reason today to celebrate your siblings. So take a little time, write them a text, send them an email, get them on the phone, and thank them for being your sister or your brother. I have a million stories. You have a million stories. I wouldn't know uh, the music bands or the bands Chicago or Bread 
or uh, Elton John or Neil Diamond if it hadn't been for my sisters. Right. I wouldn't I wouldn't know that if it hadn't been for my sisters. When I ran into the back of a Jeep riding my bike as I was mesmerized watching my feet spin below me and I ran right into the back of a Jeep, I wouldn't have had anyone to pick me up off the ground. But my sisters were there. And so uh, siblings, they matter. And you matter as a sibling. And sometimes I wonder if we haven't we think we may have outgrown each other. We don't need each other as much. But honestly, you know, if it if it came down to somebody getting sick, somebody needing help, somebody going into surgery, we worry when it's our family and our loved ones. And so today of all days, let's look out for each other. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. At some point, you need to focus on your emotions. I'm a big believer that all issues, all relationship issues, all life issues really are emotional management issues. Life is great when you're feeling great, right? Is life great when you feel horrible? No. It's the emotion that makes it great or not. Well, no, it's really what's going on. But you've probably had situations where you were at a higher state emotionally, a healthier state emotionally, and still going through difficult stuff. The difficult stuff in life will not go away. Your ability to manage the emotion It's important, and we just manifested that with uh, Dr. Laurel Mellon. Going through those questions really are pretty powerful, simply because, do you notice, it makes you almost find your shame. It almost makes you—it made me look at my guilt. It made me dig deeper into what I am doing and what I'm not doing with my own life. Those thoughts that she was processing me through create a lot of my emotional stress. So— the, the greatest value of what I think I just saw with uh, Dr. Mellon's work is that it gives me – I took a space, and in that space, I went and started to make change. When we make change and we make space and we focus on our emotions and our feelings, something's going to change. Something's going to happen, and uh, the problem is most of us don't ever make the time to do that. So make sure you take time to look at your emotions. You are not your emotion. If you're mad, you're not mad. You're still yourself you got to go put your madness in space, right? Do something about it. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can on the program to help you and your family live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we have been uh, talking a lot over the last few weeks and months on the show about truly the interdependent nature or state of all of us uh, as, as humans on this great big ball of mud, right? We feel like we're so powerful, so, you know, we have so many rights as individuals, except none of those rights matter if we don't have each other. We are truly a collection of people, and our evolutionary biology, as we've already talked about yesterday on the show, our biology even shows us how truly, you know, um, social we are and interdependent we are. And yet, we go into the ballot box, you close the little curtain, and there you are, all by your little lonesome, ready to make a decision. And you might have a very strong opinion about what you want in your president. 
However, we probably ought not forget, if, if we have any control and ability to do this, we probably ought to remember that it's really about the whole, not the parts that we need to try to maintain. The whole meaning there's a whole global community involved. There's a whole uh, country involved. There's a whole group of different parts of the country, um, demographics, ethnographics. There's sex differences. There's gender. I mean, there's um, there's every form of uh, religious diversity, race, color, you name it. And we're all still one, right? So when you're making your decisions, maybe we ought to be thinking that way. Our next guest um, is is a true expert in this topic and is the author of the book um, Commonwealth and Covenant, Economic, Politics, and Theologies of Relationality. Her name is Professor Marsha Pally. She is a professor at New York University in Multilingual Multicultural Studies and at Fordham University and is a regular guest professor at Humboldt University's Theology Faculty. And we are honored to have her on the show today. Professor Marsha Pally, thank you so much for being with us. Good to be with you. What a what an interesting topic for us. Talk to us about um, this. Uh, you call it uh, a covenant that we we kind of make with each other, um, a relationship bond that we make with each other. That that we need to be remembering, I guess, in in all of our interactions in politics and in you know in world and governing. We do. Co- uh, Commonwealth and covenant is not about partisan politics. It's about understanding the way we human beings are and the context with each other and the world that we're in, in order to frame our economic and political policies and our voting patterns. But in order to do that, we have to understand something like the basic setup. And I found in researching Commonwealth and Covenant that it's not so much that we make a covenant with each other, is that we're born into it as a matter of biology, as a matter of physics, as a matter of the way we are. We're individual persons, individual entities with singular talents and abilities. We're different and separate from each other in that way. But we become who we are through layers of relationships with each other. Mm. That... That's a, that. It really, in a way, it's it's beautiful. It's it's like yeah, it's like you're born into a family, um, and you you have a responsibility to one another. Um, and I, I guess part of your point is we need to look at each other as that, as members of almost a family. I think our families include, again, as a matter of biology, physics, and our setup. Our families include those near and those at some distance for ourselves. Our families extend out. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, Of course, think of a young child who is affected by interactions with the parents, caregivers, siblings, community. But the conditions that all those adults live in are affected by people not so near. The education that the parents siblings and the child have access to, are determined often by people not so close. The economic opportunities, the nutrition, the health care, 
the stress that a family is under due, due to health or economic duress. All these things are affected um, like in waves. If you plunk a pebble into a lake, you'll see waves going out. So our interconnectedness begins with those near, but immediately extends out. And it's just that that we need to take into account when we set up our economic and political policies. If we're interested in human flourishing, we have to take account of our setup, our individuality amidst our contexts and our relationships. Hmm. Is there something... To understand how to build policies that will promote human flourishing. Is there something about economics and political, you know, policy making um, and governing that, that makes us maybe forget this commonality? Not per se. Government, of, of course, to begin with, democratic government I'm speaking of, begins with the premise of the covenant in the 16th century. The uh, thinkers in, uh, in Europe who were developing the concept of the fertus, of the federal, the basis for our federal government, were drawing on covenantal theology as their basis, the idea that we are separate, and we even may form groups that are separate from other groups. Nonetheless, we flourish by cooperative interaction and relationship amongst persons and amongst groups. And our idea of federalism, our system of government, is born in this religious theological principle of distinct beings, distinct groups, who acknowledge their reciprocal impact on each other and therefore take each other into account in moving forward. It's a, it really is. You call that, I guess, it comes from relational theologies, um, which is it, which is a parallel of God and and us. I, I, and I'll have you explain that to us. Um, and yet, it seems like too we come down here and we are a Judeo Christian ethic in the United States. It seems, and yet we still are so partisan. Help me understand kind of the uh, relational theology concept and how it plays out or doesn't play out in our partisanship. Yeah, we have a a foundational setup, for lack of a better word. Some call it the way we've been created uh, to be. And sometimes we mess it up. But let's uh, talk a little bit about what that is to begin with. Um. We, very basically, we are each, as I mentioned, different, differentiated people, but come to be who we are through our layers of interaction. Now, science has been saying this for the last 50 or 60 years, but our faith traditions have been saying this for the last few thousand years. So one could think that our sciences are finally catching (laughs) up to our theologies. And I'll explain how it sounds in theological terms. Okay. And I want to take a moment to, to tell your listeners that some people think of 
theological principles as an illuminating metaphor. Others think of it as the Word of God. But in both cases, we have much to learn from the principles that, I'm gonna, that we're going to talk about together now. Uh, they begin with the idea that, um, that uh, there's something, whatever, makes everything and any particular thing. There could be nothing. The universe could be one spectacular blob, <laughs> but it's not. It's full of distinct entities and specific distinct entities. And whatever is the reason for all of that, there's being something rather than nothing and the particular things that there are, some people call that God. And we notice that any particular person is very different from whatever the foundational source of existence is. That is infinite, we're finite, that's not material, we are material people in our bodies. We're radically different from whatever the cause or reason or structure for all existence is. But on the other hand, we have to have something of the source of existence in us. I'm speaking metaphorically, in us. Yeah. In order to exist at all, we have to have something of the source and structure of existence in order to exist. So this, this means at very bottom that we are both very different from the source of what makes everything. But on the other hand, we're intimately related to the source of what makes everything because it's in us in order to exist. Existence itself is a matter of difference, differentiation, and profound foundational relation. That's the universe we live in. That's the system or the setup we're in. Distinct, differentiated entities within profound relation in order to continue to exist. That's what people are. We are different and distinct and in profound, intimate relation with other people and our environmental surroundings in order to exist. Thomas Aquinas, the great medieval theologian and philosopher called this the being intimate with God, God being intimate in each of us. Mm. And yet, on the other hand, biologists say the same thing, that our structure of human existence is a matter of um, relating to others near and far, in order to develop our basic brain functioning, our in intellectual development, our emotional development, and our moral development. Wow. So really, uh, let me just give it the layman's view, and you correct me, Marcia. Sorry about that. No, this is because you're brilliant. And um, so, so if whether you believe in a god... Um, I'll, I'll do it with God, but it could be just the higher power, a higher source, the governing, the the all-being energy, whatever we want to call it. We all are different, but we possess a part of that goodness, that God, that being, that power, that energy is one way to look at this, which would be why we all have to 
look at each other with some respect and recognize that we are all in relation to each other because we are all in relation to that God or higher power. But biologists say virtually the exact same thing because even though we're all so distinct and different, we all still possess the same DNA or DNA codes, genetics uh, that are flowing through all of us, which make us one, um, and why we are all so you know needed to maintain and watch out for each other. And physicists say very similar things. So, is that the point that even however you look at it, if you look at it through pure theology or religion, let's say, or through biology, we are distinct, different beings, yet one. Sounds right to me. You've you've made um, an interesting double point. Ooh. One is that we need to look at each other with respect and think about others sometimes quite at a distance from ourselves because they, too, have within them something of whatever makes everything. Ooh. And for some people, that's God. Yeah. Um, and, and you've made another point in your uh, recap there uh, that uh, our basic way of being is also in relation. Yeah. And uh, here's where the biologists and the physicists come in and are catching up to theology. Uh, They're noticing that without, let's take the biological first, without um, welcoming relations, the child cannot develop. Yeah. We know this on the positive side and the negative side. We know this, that us children, if children's physical needs are met, they're fed, they're kept warm, they're washed, their diapers are changed, etc. Let's do this, Professor. I've got to take a break, but um, we'll come back to that welcoming relation that we all need biologically and in life. Uh, excellent, excellent uh, start, I think, with Dr. Marsha Pally. We appreciate her. We'll be right back, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us, trying to uncover our individuality, yet our collectivity. We'll be right back. Townsend Show. Honored to be joined on the phone by Professor Marsha Pally. Um, she is a professor at New York University in Multilingual Multicultural Studies and at Fordham University. She's also a regular guest professor at Humboldt University's Theology Faculty and the author of the book Commonwealth and Covenant Economics, Politics, and Theologies of Rel- Relash- Relationality. That is such a hard word to say. To say. Uh, Theologies of Relationality. Professor Marsha Pally, welcome back to the show. Talking with you. We, we love having you. And again, I'm just slow. I'm just slow, Professor. But I love this, this idea, too, that uh, you keep saying that science is finally catching up with theology. Theology has been teaching this, this theology of rela- relationality forever. And um, you and now all of a sudden evolutionary biology is starting to show how hyper cooperative we are 
Um, and and even, I guess, uh, physics is now post-quantum physics is now starting to see that connectivity as well. Before the break, you were talking about the fact that in biology, for example, uh, we have to talk about, I think you called it welcoming relations, where mm-hmm. a child yeah. is born and we need to, we have this special uh, rule or, or responsibility to to care and to to take care of the child and, and help it learn the social skills. The welcoming relations I was referring to are necessary for development. They're necessary for physical, neurochemical, brain development, without which the child is impaired and is impaired um, especially in their ability to feel empathy, to see the long term, to be able to compare past and future, and to be able to make moral decisions. Mm. Let me give you some ideas about what the biologists are saying, and then we can switch over to physics. Um, uh, Evolutionary biologist Donald Fass, for example, says that we are not only set up for relationship, but wired for goodwill as a matter of uh, evolution. Um, And Edwin Fruvald calls this reciprocal altruism which even precedes our formal institutions and, again, appears to be hardwired. Hmm. And there's an evolutionary reason for this. Let's say you have two groups, and they're looking at some tasty bison to um, kill off in our hunter-gatherer stage. Hunting and gathering is 95% of human evolution. If these two groups go to war against each other, they kill off a lot of each other, they reduce their resources, and there's less of a chance anybody's going to get that bison to survive. But if they cooperate, then they get the bison and everybody eats. Uh, and biologists are finding the same thing with, um, with child rearing. The more cooperative child rearing uh, there is, the more chances that offspring will survive. Hmm. And at the level of biology, we shouldn't be surprised because this relational dependence exists in physics. Um, all, all our subatomic particles are distinct particles, to be sure, but their trajectories are formed in relation to the tra- trajectories of other subatomic particles. Uh, for instance, here's um, physicist Carlo Rovelli, All things are continually interacting with one another, and in doing so, each bears the traces of that with which it has interacted. In this sense, all things continually exchange information about one another. Mm. That which makes us specifically human does not signify our separation from nature. It is part of that nature. It's a form that nation has taken here on this planet. In the infinite play of combinations through the, here's the point, reciprocal influencing and exchanging. Wow. That's at a subatomic level. That's at the subatomic level. And we shouldn't, therefore, be surprised that at the biological level and at the human developmental level, we are also distinct, but we don't get to be anybody except through our relations. Mm. You asked me a a question a little while ago. Um, so how come we're so partisan? Right. Um, it's interesting that um, all of the great faith traditions take uh, this into account, um, noticing when we have free will, we sometimes do make the decisions 
um, out of fear often to focus on me and mind as a protection mechanism. The problem with that is that in the short term and the long term, that's not very productive, precisely because we're set up for relationality. Right. There are many stresses in history, um, not only scarcity, but I would say more the fear of scarcity, the anticipation or fear that somebody out there is going to take what you have. And this fearful anticipation often promotes a defensive response that leads to aggression against others. And, and yet, it doesn't work out very well for us. It works out into individuals fighting each other, or groups fighting each other, or what the great 17th century philosopher Thomas Hobbes called the war of all against all, mm. which he noted comes from fear, not more than anything else. And if you, in a fearful mode, start thinking of yourself excessively, not just yourself in context with others, but only yourself, me and mine, my profits, my firm, my political party, me, 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 then you're also apt to think that the world works that way, that others are doing the same, and you have to protect yourself from their chicanery and their anticipated attacks against you. And you get a cycle of attacks, and it's a downward spiral, because we flourish when we function cooperatively and taking the other into regard understanding our reciprocal impact and reciprocal responsibility. Mm. One, that this, uh, Professor Pally, is one of the reasons that I think uh, evolutionarily, I mean, that why I think of my God and how that helps me. Because um, I, I look at it like um, I need, I can worry that someone else might take it or I could exercise and have fear or I could exercise faith in a higher power that is guiding me to not have everything in the world, but to become what I want or need to become. Um, so, so I guess my faith might help me through my fear. But um, we only have a few more minutes, and I've got to ask you this. So what does all of this have to do with when we walk into the ballot box? What criteria do we use to pick a policy or a president? I think we need to use the criteria that will lead to the long-term flourishing of people on, on the earth. Yeah. That means people in their contexts. That's the basic framework. And that's the basic premise of Commonwealth and, and Covenant. We have to make our political choices based on uh, the universe that we live in and, and the condition of, of our human nature. So uh, moving away from that fear-based perspective, we should recognize that we will all do a lot better if we go with the grain of the setup, so to speak. Go with the grain, if you believe in God, then of our created setup. Mm-hmm. Go with the grain of the way human beings and the universe is organized 
and we're organized for reciprocal cooperation and taking that into account. Joel Hunter, the Reverend Joel Hunter, um, put it beautifully. He uh, talks about asking yourself, when you think you're in a fearful attack situation, why is the other side for the other side? I'm going to repeat that. Ask yourself why the other side is for the other side. And now try to take that into consideration. All sides have to take that into consideration when you negotiate solutions, when you develop economic policy, educational policy, political policy. And we need to be voting for people who appreciate that because that's our foundational setup. That's beautiful. And it, and and basic, right? I mean, it's just go go with the grain of how we were or how we've been created. I mean, genetics are teaching us, uh, theology is teaching us, and uh, Professor Marcia Pally, you're teaching us. Thank you so much for your insight. Oh, thank you so much for having me on and for asking me such great questions. Thank I really you. enjoyed this. Thank you. You bet. Again, the name of the book, Commonwealth and Covenant, Economics, Politics, and Theologies of Rela- Relationality. Relationality. you think as a relationship coach I'd be able to say that word. Professor Marsha Pally, again, is the author of that book. Uh, profound. Profound insight. Um, Genetics, physics, theology, folks, they're telling us that we are one, yet distinct, and yet we might not always act that way because our fear creeps in and and starts to take over. We'll take a break, come back, hoping here on the show to help you see the good in the world, and the good is right next to you and across the country and across the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's so interesting to me. Uh, you talk to all of these academics who spend their entire life studying stuff. And yet, yesterday, I was just reading a book, just reading a book about spiritual living. And the exact same lesson was basically being taught. But there's, you know, however you see it, there is an interconnected nature to all of us. And if you look at when somebody or some group becomes too individualistic, too focused on protecting their core, they they might just be flat out acting out of faith, or out of fear, not faith. Isn't faith the the opposite of the fear? And can you have both? Can I be full of fear and full of faith? I don't. I don't think you can. Um, I think at some point fear is going to drive us to become people we don't like. One of the big lessons I see when I'm working with my clients is no matter what happens in your marriage, even if you could blame 99% of the marriage failure on your spouse. I wouldn't. I would I would fully own my 1% or 10% because and I, I was saying this the other day as I was training a bunch of coaches 
um, on my program. I'm sitting there talking to him. And I said, no matter what, it is never a one-way failure of a relationship. Relationships don't just fail one way. Um, There's one relationship I can think of. That would be your relationship with deity, your relationship with your God, that 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 that'll never fail two ways. That'll only fail our way. But when it comes to our marriages and our other relationships, there's always things I can do differently, especially the sign that we that we may be upside down in the relationship is if I have a lot of anger, if I have a lot of fear, if I have guilt, if I have shame, if I have blame. If I'm blaming, fearing, shaming, guilting, then I know that I probably have something in me that is not quite right. Because if what I was doing was right, wouldn't there be a peace associated with it? Doesn't mean there wouldn't be a trial still, because it would still be difficult. But I should probably have some peace. And I've noticed with these couples as um, they're really struggling and they're breaking up, um, I have some people that are way too insecure in order to, to even go through such a difficult phase as a divorce or as separation. They're just too weak. They're too dependent. I have other people that are, that are just too rude. They're just too selfish. They're too, you know, bullheaded. Either way, whether you're too weak or too strong, it's a failure of us to be agents that are independent and able to act. And that's kind of what I believe Professor uh, Marsha Pally's teaching us here is at some point, whether you believe it through God and theology or through biology or through evolution and or through physics, um, through politics, there is a point where if you're too individualistic, you are going to cut your nose off. You're going to harm yourself. That's what I always say on the show. We are all one natural disaster away from realizing how important everyone is, right? We're one terrorist attack away from uniting again as a great country. And then fear operates and then we start tearing ourselves apart. So let's not do it. Let's just start seeing the divine spark, as Emerson called it, inside of each other. How about that? That's a start. Hoping to see the good in the world, right? That's the goal of this show. We'll take a break. More ideas, more tools to help you live longer and love stronger. 